Oh, so I spent great. a lot of time in people's houses in yeah. the Netherlands, walking around, it's getting hit by bikes. Well. <laughs> yeah, these people, these people don't care if you no. you know, you're on foot, you better move. <laughs> yes. So have you have you played with with Kenny Dover? No, I have not. I I've okay. actually, you know, watched. Of course, I watch everybody. I yeah. said, if you're out there and you have a name, I know your music. This is a podcast called Walk, Talk, Listen. An attempt to connect people and make this world a bit better by sharing opinions and experiences based on the belief that everyone's perspective is true, albeit partial. My name is Maurice Bloom, and I would like to welcome you to yet another episode of Walk, Talk, Listen. Good day, everybody. This is another episode of the podcast Walk, Talk, Listen. And as always, I'm delighted with today's guest. Uh, and her name is Lakeisha uh, Benjamin, who's an awesome uh, saxophone player. And, um, you know, I'm going to ask her a couple of questions today, and especially about uh, a recent project that she worked on, uh, an album that I really uh, encourage people to check out. Um, it's about... Yeah, we will talk about it. So you will you will hear that. Lakeisha, good good day. How are you doing? Hey, how are you? I'm doing okay. Yeah. Um, you know, b- before we talk about the project that you did on, you know, John and Alice uh, Coltrane, um, I would like to ask you, um, you know, when when did you start getting into music? How old were you, and you know, how did that happen? Oh wow! Um, I started when I was 11 years old, and mm-hmm. And was that elementary school? And and why did you pick up the the saxophone? Uh, there was no particular reason that was special at all. I mean, we had to pick um between band, chorus, or art. Mm-hmm. So I naturally picked the band because I figured, you know, I already knew chorus is never going to work. And then um, somehow when I was there, they had all the instruments, you know, lined up on the wall. Mm-hmm. And in America, they kind of start everybody off on recorder. You all get a recorder. You have to do that for a year. Mm-hmm. And then the next year, you can start like a real instrument. I'm not saying the recorder is not real, but, you know, just for beginning purposes, even though I know some amazing recorder players. But the next year I came in and the alto sax was standing there. And I just knew I was like, that's the one. Mm-hmm. And they tried to, you know, get me to different instruments. But uh, I held my ground until that one came available. <laughs> <laughs> Great. And, and. And so you started because you were playing the saxophone yourself. Did you start to specifically listen to other saxophone players as well, or or just to music in general? How did that go? I think I just had this idea in my head. You know, I, I even when I was on the recorder, the the same the fingerings for the recorder and the saxophone are similar, but even when I got the recorder, I had borrowed mm-hmm. some books from the music school mm-hmm. on the saxophone, and I was already learning the fingering on the saxophone. You know, it it could be because I'm, you know, not not maybe subconsciously because I'm from a Dominican neighborhood. Mm-hmm. You know, the alto saxophone is what you hear on merengue. That's the mm-hmm. top instrument. Mm-hmm. That's the top thing played. So it could have been in my mind. Mm-hmm. This is what I want to do. But at that point in time, I had no idea. I was just literally, I got the books. I was studying the saxophone. I just decided on my own. This is the one. Wow. And and so did, did your parents play as well? or No, or they don't no. play anything. Wow. My parents had me when they were very young, so mm-hmm. they were mostly working. Okay. And do you have any sim- siblings? I had one sibling. She passed away a oh, couple of years sorry. ago, but she didn't play either. Okay. She wow. actually hated the sound of me practicing. <laughs> so how did you get away then with practicing and, and you, you just pursued and, you know, went for it? You know, what's actually lucky about that, uh, the program I started off in was at a school called PS 189 in Washington Heights. And the guy that started me off on the saxophone was a bass player, but a, you know, a teacher. Mm-hmm. And it turns out even to this day, he's Ron Carter's bass handler. Mm. So I had told him that my mom says, I can't play the saxophone. It's too loud. She's not with it. He drove me from the school to my house and went to the door and said, he's going to talk to her and begged her or whatever he did in there. Then he came out 
and they agreed that, you know, they would listen to the practice. You know, I just had to, you know, and I did a lot of it. I did, you know, I, I, every time I came to school, I was at least doing it four or five hours. So it was him that convinced my mom to allow it to happen. So we're still friends now, even. I think we all teach ourselves because when you're sitting alone, you're trying to figure out mm -hmm. new things. And, and the more you grow in your own self, there's a personality in you that you want to mm -hmm. figure out how to express. But even to this day, I still, even especially during the pandemic, I took the opportunity to study with a lot of people I look up to. I mm -hmm. believe that learning is never done. Um, do you teach all the kids how to play uh, oh, the yeah, instrument? Yeah. You do? I, I, st I Before, way back, maybe... Five, six years ago, I was doing stuff and after school programs in my in the neighborhoods mm -hmm. with Kip. I also teach at Jazz and Lincoln Center. Mm -hmm. You know, I this year I started doing some stuff at Harvard. So teaching is a big part of my way of I wouldn't say just giving back, but passing on mm -hmm. what I've learned and where I am right now to people coming up. You know, I feel like you have to be connected to people that are connected to the source in mm -hmm. order to come up the right way. Yeah. So did you did you have to go to any parents to convince them that, you know, your one of your pupils had to, you know, continue uh, practicing? I didn't have to convince them to continue practicing, mm -hmm. but I had to sometimes work with their schedules because the parents have things planned and they have, you know, they have practice to convince them that your, your son may sound bad for six years. Mm -hmm. The tone, you know, it's going to take a long time. I had to convince them sometimes. With the different neighborhoods they lived in, it was very mm -hmm. dangerous that this could actually be a help to keep them inside doing something. So luckily, so far, most of the programs that I'm in that when people see their their kids excitement and then mm -hmm. they see that they have a teacher that's just excited, mm -hmm. they embrace that rather than move away because it's a every parent wants to see their child just smiling and happy and safe. Mm. Cool. cool. Um, you know, when when. When did you uh, decide that, you know, I want to do this for as part of my profession, you know, to make a living? Uh, I didn't know that it was a possibility for it to be a job. I thought this was just what you do. Because mm -hmm. that teacher I had with uh, that um, worked with Ron Carter, mm -hmm. we had band practice after school. We all went to different schools. Well, some of us went to different schools from maybe, what is that, 4 p.m.? to at least 7.30, but we always stayed to at least nine and then he mm. would give us a ride. He had a big minivan mm. and throw us all in there and take us to our houses and, you know, call our parents out the window so they could see where we were. Mm -hmm. But we did that like five days a week. Wow. And after like maybe a month of doing that, I was already doing gigs around the neighborhood in the bus station and on the street mm. at the parade, you know, and this is like a very Dominican populated neighborhood. So yeah. these, these gigs are all night. So to me, I thought this is just what you do. If you want to get better and you're having fun, this is what you do. It wasn't until maybe, maybe I got to college. Mm -hmm. I did a show and someone after the show kind of gave me a handshake. And I was like, okay, that was fun. And when I moved my hand, I saw that I had a 20. Mm -hmm. And I was like, wait, 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 wait. You uh, lost your money. And the guy was like, no, no, that, that's for you. I didn't even realize then that's not enough, but it just, it just, uh, I wasn't aware that, you know, I thought this is what you do. And since I did it as a kid, I wasn't thinking, oh, there's a job to this. And, you know, as I got to college, that's the first time I realized, oh, I have bills now. Mm -hmm. And then it became, oh, this has handshakes. So let me see how far this can go. <laughs> that's, that's great. And, and so, you know, after uh, high school, where did you, yeah, did you study music? How did, how did it uh, go for you? You know, when I was already in uh, high school, I was already playing with some people. Like mm -hmm. I started just with Clark Terry. Yeah. I had, um, at that point, I was doing merengue gigs almost every other night. Mm -hmm. And those go 9 p.m. to like 4 a.m. I was already, you know, I didn't know it was gigs, but I was already starting the process. So when I got to college, I had my school. Mm -hmm. I was, I was working in a supermarket full time. And then I was going to jam sessions all night. And whenever I had time off, I was practicing eight hours a day. So I was already in a swing of like, this is how I'm living my life in my own little bubble. You know, just having my own fun. So I, I didn't realize that uh, 
there was much difference. When I got out of college, I had already started playing with, I think, um, I think, yeah, maybe the last year I got in touch with Rashid. I was working with Reggie a little bit. So it started creeping up a little bit, but it's not enough to make you like full time. Mm -hmm. But it had started creeping up. But for me, it was already full time because I'm practicing eight hours a day. Then I had a, a friend of mine that would come knock on the window. Mm -hmm. And then we walk and we go to the jam session and we know we're going to go to each jam session until like three in the morning. And the next day it happens again. So it was already full time. It just didn't, I just didn't maybe fit the requirements for the IRS. Hmm. Got you. And, and so did you, did you um, study at the at music school as well? Or, or uh, how did you, or, or you, you know? Absolutely. Um, so like I said, in elementary and middle school, mm -hmm. that same director I was studying with and I, At high school, I went to a place called Fiorella H. LaGuardia, mm -hmm. which is a performing arts school. So they have dance, vocal, instrumental, art, and um, there's something I'm leaving out, production. Okay. So I was a music major there. Mm -hmm. So th by that time, LaGuardia is across the street from Jazz Lincoln Center. Jazz Lincoln Center used to have open rehearsals. Mm -hmm. So I would go there and talk to Winston, talk to the band, and eventually I started studying with Wes Anderson. And my neighbor, at the time with Steve Wilson. Hmm. So I had already, I had heard him practicing. So I would knock, anytime I heard something, I'd knock on the door, see. I went to an after school when I was in middle school called Harlem School of the Arts. Patience Higgins was teaching there. Hmm. So I say, I want it, I want a lesson, you know? So it started like that in new school. I started studying with Gary Bartz. And then at that point, any alto play that was on top, I picked. I picked Vincent Herring, I picked Antonio Hart. I picked everybody that I felt besides Kenny Garrett, that I felt was, you know, Bobby Watson mm. and James Spaulding. And I literally hunted them down. <laughs> so that's how, that's how I would, I would do it. I mean, when I started for masters, it was too late. I'm already hunting people down. I don't have to do it anymore, but that was always my process. If, if you're doing well, I should study with you because one, you can pick me to sub for you. Mm -hmm. And two, whatever you're doing is what I, is what's happening. You know, that's 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 working. So I need to be around as many people that are doing well. Great. Um, you know, you you have made a, a couple of albums uh, now, and you know, when when did you start making songs yourself? Was that from the beginning or was it later? It wasn't from the beginning. I, like uh, the same way I found out that you could be a musician late, mm -hmm. I found out that you could be a songwriter and a, and a sax player mm. and a, even a band leader way after other people. My goal in the beginning was just to latch on to many people so I could have as many experiences. And then when I found out some people were touring, I said, oh my God, I got to get a passport and figure out who's going to take me somewhere. So that became my goal. But when I was in college, I had a friend named Georgia and Muldrow. And I was going through a rough patch in college. I just wasn't, they were more modern than I was used to. I was used to old school musicians, you know, throwing you on the stage, play girl, not like, what is the, what is the, the theory and all that? I had to learn that stuff. So I, I had moved to LA for a second. I took a year off. And when I was in LA, she had a huge grand piano in her house. Mm -hmm. And I just kind of sat there one day and I was playing things. And she came in and said, what are you doing? I said, look, I made something up. And she said, that's a whole song. I said, really? She said, yeah, it's long. It's a whole song. I said, okay. She said, you know, you can make more songs. I said, really? She said, yeah, that's a good one. Let's name it. And that's how it started. And then, you know, she's big on uh, production and mm -hmm. just gadgets. So she had, she had a setup in her house. She said, look, I'm going to show you how to use this stuff. And the songs you're having, you can make your own little demos. Mm -hmm. And still to this day, if I make a song, I send it to the band, a demo, whether it's jazz or whatever, so they have an idea of what I'm hearing. Mm -hmm. And and when you make songs, is it, you know, is the, is the saxophone to start or, you know, it's... I never make songs on the saxophone. Okay. So the songs are always on the piano. Uh -huh. That's how it always starts, like the ideas. And even I'm playing the piano, maybe it is I hear the bass first. And because we have all this technology now, I can play the bass on the piano and it works. But most of the time, it's either the, the melody or something, especially if there's lyrics. Sometimes the lyrics stand out to me the most. But... Most of the time, it starts with the groove. It always starts with the drums, and, and I want to set the tone of how I want the song to feel. 
How do I want this song to make people feel? And I start there and I, and I, I build up. Yeah, what I uh, wanted to ask you is a couple of questions about your last, I think it's your last album, you know, the, the tribute, would I call it, would you call it like that to the Coltrane's? Um, the, you know, why did you make that album? Um, like I said with my friend Georgia, she's a, a, a good, a, she was a good friend of Alice Coltrane's. Mm -hmm. So it was actually Georgia that introduced me to Alice Coltrane's music. So probably early teens. And one day, you know, I'm opening the liner notes. And I see, oh, yeah, yeah. And all praises tribute to John Coltrane. So I'm like, oh, Alice Coltrane got a brother. I'm on it. I hit the Google. I go on Google. I see that there's no way possible that's a brother. They're too close. It's too much stuff happening. But then I saw his career at that point, I had already looked up all her music. I had listened to every album she has. Mm. So when I saw his music and that they were not relatives, I said, you know what? I'm going to just get the albums and put them in chronological order. Mm. And then when I go from the beginning to the end, whenever, how long it takes, then I'll know completely who this person is compared to who she is because mm. I've already been through hers. Mm. So as I was going through his from the way beginning before miles, everything, by the time I got to the end, you know, culture has a long library. Yeah. By the time I got to the end and, and so many different styles have changed, sometimes each year. And then I started reading about him. And then I started reading about her and what she's doing with her spirituality and her music and reading about him and then asking Reggie Workman, what's, what's going on with this guy? What, what, what did he like to eat? What was he talking to you about? By the time that finished, I had decided that those two were like, even though they're past role models to me, of how I should deal with my music and how I should deal with my humanity and how I should live spiritually. So that's what started for me, really not just dig, digging through the music, but understanding like individuals are always striving to be better. And, and if there's any one thing I want to do, I want to constantly get better on all those platforms. You know, I, I think you can be extremely proud on that uh, album. I, I often listen to it, and I, I just uh, saw also that on Amazon it has been you know, picked as yeah one of the the best albums I think of 2020 um, as well. So yeah, it's 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 pretty amazing. How how did you you know because I understand that you did a lot of study in but. You know, you to go through a long process, you know, understanding and, and learning from it continuously. But you also asked a lot of other musicians to join you on that album. So how did that go, you know, in between you know, explaining to them what you were trying to achieve with the album? Uh, basically, what I told you is what I explained to them, that basically mm -hmm. I was doing this kind of tribute thing to them. Yeah. So John and Alice coaching and each group got a different explanation. Mm -hmm. You know, so if you were older than 70 years old. It was clear that I wanted you because you played with one of them. Mm. You know, that's why I wanted you there. And because you represent what jazz is in terms of this is the highest level of our oldest ancestors, not ancestors, but oldest elders that are yeah. still alive that have yeah. played with the legends that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. If you were 50 and above right before that, you were somebody that when I was like in high school, I was looking at you in jazz times. I was reading magazines about you. I was putting, I used to cut out the pictures and put them on my wall. And I wanted not to be like you, but to to know what it, that achieves that level of success from coming from nothing. Mm -hmm. If you were in my age group or even maybe there's one person younger. Then you had more requirements. Mm -hmm. You had to be somebody I thought that had at this stage paid tribute and respect to the elders before. Mm -hmm. You had to be an innovative band leader. You couldn't just be a sideman. You had to be a band leader. You had to be innovative while still respecting the tradition. And you had to be actively out here with your band trying to push the music forward mm. and, and spread a message. So that's how I came. When I, when I made those requirements, then it was easy to fill in the categories mm. because I just, I just did it like a dream list. If, if nobody could bother me and inhibit me, who would I have? Mm. And then I put it on the list and then asked all those people repeatedly and whoever showed up was the result. <laughs> 
right? And yeah, are, are there any players out there that you wish they would have, you know, been part of the album? Yeah, there's some people that I ask, you know, most people don't ask that, but there's some people that said no, actually. People, it's hard to imagine because you see so many, oh my God, look at yeah, this, look at yeah. this. If it would have had all the people that asked, there'd probably be 60 or 70, or 70 people on the album. Mm. So one of the people that I wanted was Roy Haynes. But uh, unfortunately, the day before the recording, his brother died. Mm. So I had to respect that and deal with that. And he went to do that. So that was somebody that we missed. The uh, I'm trying to think who else was a flake. Uh, Jeff Tane Watts was a flake. Um, Kenny Garrett last minute had something that was very, very for me as an alto player. Yeah, one of the disappointing things because as you can see, I already have five alto players on there. I wanted is yeah. I wanted like a, a hundred alto players. So those were some people, but I always believe where opportunity goes away, it comes the next time. Yeah, yeah. No, I I, I agree with you. If if you you know, are are you happy with the final product? Absolutely not. Yeah. Absolutely not. No. And, and part of it is I feel that I wasn't able to do my best because mm-hmm. before that time, I, there was no management, nothing. Mm-hmm. That came, once I finished the project, then everybody wants to manage me. Then everybody wants mm-hmm. to book gigs. But before yeah. that, I had to call these people myself. So I'm calling them while I'm in the studio. Mm-hmm. I'm arranging all the sounds, all the sets. I'm making sure that we have enough bagels. I'm making sure that mm-hmm. the, everybody's been paid. I'm finding, I'm raising the money. So all those jobs fell on me. So I'm, mm. and, and I'm arranging the music. I'm making sure the strings are that the people that call are here are they getting paid? Mm. Have they signed their their forms? So while I was focused in the studio, it wasn't as focused as I could be. Mm. And then I also don't think anytime you're doing culture music, you want a, a million takes because everything is at stake. You know, mm. it's a it's a so I. I definitely wish I could have did it better or played better or arranged some things better, but you have to realize that as an artist, you're going to feel that way after every project. Well, I, you know, for what it's worth, I think it's an amazing album. So, so uh, that you can be very proud of. So that's my opinion. Uh, but I understand, you know, uh, what you're saying. Um, Lakisha, I want to tell you why I started this podcast. It's it's a spin-off of a, of a 100-mile walk that I've been doing for the last 9 to 10 years. And so I walk 100 miles in a week. So that means 15 to 20 miles per day to raise awareness about hunger and mm-hmm. um, poverty injustice in the world. You know, and uh, when I was doing that, I was often accompanied for a mile or sometimes five miles um, by somebody else. And then we started talking about life. And last year, I was not able to do that. I was not able to be accompanied. And then I thought, well, but I still can meet people virtually. So I call it a virtual walk. So, you know, since then, since last October, it has gone a little bit out of hand on a weekly basis. I yeah. talk with musicians and and you know, uh, journalists, uh, people uh, working in charity, etc., about life and what drives them. So, I walk a uh, hundred miles because I want to raise money and awareness about hunger, poverty, and injustice. If you would be asked to walk a hundred mile in a week as well, uh, what is the cause? You know, what is the reason that you would do it? So you're you're doing your walk as a to highlight hunger mm-hmm. and if i was to do it what would i do it for it's hard to put it in one topic but i i would i would hope to not that we're in like an indian class system but i do feel like we are and mm-hmm. i do feel like covid has really highlighted who matters and who doesn't mm-hmm. who's important when we were asked to make sure the elderly were okay during covid or did we listen and in america we didn't we just went out and got everybody sick. When everybody gets sick, some people here survive only because they have better care than other people. So I, I would hope that financially, and just people would just learn to live with each other. Like we, we're we're having the virus still. We could just end it if we all stay home, but we don't stay home because everyone says the economy. So I just really wish that the world would realize there is no economy. We all 
who do you owe? We owe each other. And we're all in the same problem. So pause it, whatever you have to do. But if you, we could all just spend some more time being empathetic of others and realizing that we are all stuck in, as one. And this situation is really highlighting that it's just one thing. And it's, it doesn't matter what interest you have. The one thing of all of us, one person could mess it all up because one person started it, actually. There was one COVID case and they moved it. So I, I would walk just to hope for, for just equality, that we're all equal. And then you can have your goals and dreams. And of course, we can have levels. But we all have to start at the same. The bottom is equal. <laughs> um, no, and, and, you know, I, I absolutely agree with you. I often talk about, you know, I, I had hoped that COVID would have real... Uh, learned us, taught us that we are all interconnected and that if you want, really want to solve this problem, as you said, you really need to collaborate and realize that and not think that you can solve the problem by yourself. No, you know, it's it's a pandemic. It's, it's a result of that we are all uh, connected. Um, yeah. What, what drives you in life, uh, Rakisha? So in other words, you know, I, I know I, I asked you to wake up quite early. So, but why ultimately you wake up and, you know, get out of bed and start doing what you do? That's an interesting question because in the pandemic, there's days you don't even want to wake up out of bed, you know, mm-hmm. and it's hard to admit that. But yeah. I think it's really shown me that it's people that drives me. You know, there's so many aspects of my job that I'm still doing. I'm still teaching on Zoom. Mm-hmm. I'm still doing this. I'm still doing that. I'm still finding ways to make money. But it's never as fulfilling as when I have a direct audience there and our goal is to interact. And even even if I just go play a show in Manhattan, fine. But I kind of get a joy out of going to different people's countries and cultures and and letting them show me this is what you're doing. And then I say, this is what I'm doing to really understand each type of person in every place. You don't you don't get that on the resort. You don't get that when you're just staying in the hotel. So I think it's people that drives me reaching them and connecting. It's something that I need. And the pandemic has showed me without that, I can suffer. I can suffer big time. So that's what I'm hoping. That's the only reason I want the pandemic to go away. Because the same time, connection is what drives us, but connection is what's spreading it. So it's a weird uh, balance. That's why nobody stays home. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, are you are you uh, performing already again? You know, are you touring or, or how... Or is it so you, canceled? Yeah, you caught me at an interesting time. So this mm. week actually would start the first week that I'm performing again. So we start on the East Coast. Okay. And this is the first time. I mean, I've done live streams a lot, mm-hmm. but this is the first time my audience, my audiences will be back. So when I start on the 5th of August, it'd be at the Clifford Brown Jazz Fest in Delaware. And that's the first time we're pursuing the audience will have returned. You know, the first day we had the CD release party, the next day. COVID shut down New York. So this is only the second time that Ben has seen an audience <laughs> in, in like a year. Mm-hmm. So it's exciting. It's interesting. I don't know what's going to happen, you know, and part of me has to rely on like, what kind of performer am I now? I can't live in the past because that's something else. That's like your ego. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm looking forward to see who I will be. Now that all this time has passed because this is the first time I'm stepping out playing wise, I have a clean slate. You know, you, you, when you talked about um, the gold trains, you, you mentioned, you know, spirituality is really an important part of their lives. Right. And, and I guess, it's also uh, for you the case because, you know, I, I think they were kind of role models in a way uh, yeah. for you. Um, you know, when I, when I walk uh, with my guests, we often talk about, you know, what drives you, as I said, but also about then quickly about, you know, religion and spirituality. And uh, the conversations that we that I've had with several people is about the younger generation and religion and spirituality. So some of my co-workers said, you know, the younger generation, they think and feel differently about uh, religion and spirituality. And others say, tell me, 
like, no, they might perceive institutionalized religion a little, a little bit differently than the older generation, but they're still very spiritual. So if you, you know, if you hear what I'm, what I just said, um, how would you reflect on that? You know, what do you think is happening with the younger generation around these topics? I think in general, you're right about the institutionalized thing. We're now in a, in a phase, especially my generation and, and the ones younger, the teenagers now, mm-hmm. they don't want to be in the box. Mm-hmm. They don't want to be in your box of this is how you have to do it. This is how you yeah. don't have to do it. Like some people prosper in the box. Like some people like me, I don't like boxes, but I like order. If you give me a certain rules and I make myself a schedule, that's how I'll get an album like this done. Everything I do, I make a schedule for it so that I understand it. But the younger generation, they want to come to it somewhat on their own. But they're going through the same steps as the older generation. They just feel that they've discovered something new. Like when I first started writing music, I felt I was writing brand new stuff that nobody had ever written. And then I hear a Prince song. I said, oh, that's that. Oops. So mm-hmm. I, I do think I do think they have that. But there is a, a break between some people that have been so jaded by the older generation and putting the laws against, I guess, homosexuality, race all these things that they don't want anything to do with religion because of what it stands for for them. So I do think like the gen, what are they called? Gen Z now, the yes, youngers, yes. they don't want anything to do with it. So they are spiritual in terms of how, what they play with and what, but they, they fight for different reasons now because the generations before them have broke so many barriers that they don't, they don't, I think they're a little bit more fearless. They don't care what your rules are, what your laws are. They don't care. They don't have anything to lose. They don't have any money to lose. So I admire them, and I feel that uh, I'm looking forward to the to the what they start uh, stirring up because they're not they're not playing. <laughs> hey, you, I think you you know through your music you've seen a lot of the world because you've played in several on, on several different continents. Um, yeah, how do you? Yeah, tell a little, tell us. Uh, or take us there in terms of your learning of what you saw and how that helped to be the person that you are today and as well as in your music, you know, that you went out of the U.S. Yeah, I think the most fortunate things that happened to me is before I got to play like a France, Switzerland, Belgium, I was a part of the program with the United States and Jazz and Lincoln Center called Rhythm Road. Mm-hmm. I think mine was part of that too. And they send you to small, almost, I don't want to say impoverished places, but let's just say different places. And they send you not to the capital, deep, nine hours outside into the city. And it's your job, musically, to connect to these people. There's no one to help you. There's no, you know, you know how it is. There's no one to stop a boo. There's no one, if they think that you think you're better than them, to stop violence. It's your job to calm the situation. And on those tours, I was in the outskirts of Haiti. I was all the way in Eastern Europe and Turkmenistan, Eastern, Vladivostok. I was always in, in, in what is that the middle east Mm. like deep in nigeria there was always times for like a year and a half two years where this is my friends would be like oh yeah i'm at the south of france i'd be like yeah i'm in somalia you know so i think uh (laughs) my beginning tour experiences were seeing a lot of poverty all over the world and because of the nature of the job i had to speak to these people Mm. and find out what's making them tick some of them have never seen a woman standing up in front of a band in their life and you could see them standing on the side, scared, waiting for the men to leave. And then they ask me, you know, instead of asking me, how does it feel for the sex? They say, how do you feel to, to, to be in charge? And I said, oh, no, it's not in charge. But yeah, but you are the one standing here. And they felt like it was some type of hope from that. So I think, I guess I came to it more in a humanitarian way. Mm-hmm. And then I started going to big festivals. Where When I started doing festivals, I was like, wow, this is like luxury. We go to the hotel, we get interviewed, we get steaks. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think it really gave me a clear idea of what my purpose was mm. and what, 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 what. I think I'm a great saxophone player, but I think I'm a, my purpose is to reach people from different places. Mm. So I'm using my gift to do what my purpose is. Great. And, and, and one question about that period. So were, were you alone? Were you the only student or were you in a group of students who had to do this? We weren't students. We were getting paid. The government is paying us. Okay. They're paying us pretty well, oh. but uh, I was the only woman. So it's always a quartet. Okay. Okay. So the the first times I went, the band leader was a drummer. He yeah. had met me. I was a teaching assistant in Lincoln Center. 
and he put me in the band. So I did a couple tours with that. Then, you know, once people see, oh, she does well with this. Once the once the ambassadors to the country see you're doing good, yeah. then another band called me and I started working with them. And then it was like, well, let's try her by herself and see. You know, it's kind of like almost like a teaching job. You're moving up. They're, they're just trying to see how, how are you handling these adverse situations, you know, because you are representing the U.S. government. At all times, politics are happening, even though you're there for music. There's some there's some politics. Wow, interesting. I, I've never heard of that. So, uh, yeah, cool. And you I said that Maya was also part Maya was, uh, uh, Yeah, she wasn't part of my group, but she led one. When, I think okay. the first year I did one, she did one and they went like South America. Okay. It's, it's hard for me to remember. I remember the show we did in D.C. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I think now it's called Rhythm Road something okay. but i think for the the generation like all the old jazz legends they tell yeah. me oh yeah 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 what this they know it was called uh-huh. something jazz ambassadors oh so every older person i talked to they remember that program from yeah. back in the day wow oh that's cool and just for the listeners to remind them you know i did i did a episode also with maya and um i was a friend of, of lakisha so so uh, if you haven't listened to maya then definitely you should listen to that particular episode um the kisha is um you know there are a lot of we talked about the pandemic and other issues in terms of uh, in um uh, inequity in the world um what worries you most uh worry you most in the, in the world today what and worries in, me the most yeah and then in connection to that where do you still see hope so worries and hope uh it's hard to say cuz we're in the pandemic but uh I think what worries me the most is the lack of empathy we have. If if you're my brother and you're struggling, based on how social media is now, I may beat you up on the social media and get a bunch of people to laugh with me, almost like bully. There's a lot of bullies in the world for people, and a lot of people have decided what makes you strong. I'm strong because I made this album with all these people, but if I didn't get it done, I'm weak. So I think it worries me that that we don't, we don't sacrifice for people. We don't, we don't, we don't, if someone's falling down, we shouldn't be pushing them further on Twitter. We should grab them right then because sometimes the weakest people become the next president. You don't know what their potential is. So I think that worries me. I mean, the hope I have is that I'm, I'm seeing awareness to it. The pandemic has created a lot of awareness around it, but in all honesty, there's a lot of work left around that topic. I think racial equality, everything has started making moves. Empathy is something that people really, really struggle with, especially in Western culture. It's survival of the fittest is how they're taught. To each his own. What I have is mine. You know, this is my song, my solo, my moment. I have to push myself to the top. Even though I have a whole band behind me, who's pushing? Is it me or is it them? Because they're really playing the whole time. So I, I think we just need to humble ourselves. Where do you still see hope? I like I said that there's awareness in this stuff, and like I said, the younger generation seems to really have a firm grip on that type of empathy. I don't know if they've been babied more by because we you know we slowly get more, but they have a real understanding of when enough is enough. So so I do see hope in the fact that they're coming up and they're coming up swinging. So I hope that that's helping, and I'm hoping that the pandemic is showing people that. You know, some people are joking about COVID one day and the next day they have it. So they're forced into empathy. So I'm hoping that the suffering brings people to just feel it, man, feel it more. Okay. Um, the next question is is um, a question that actually many of my uh, guests you know, struggle with, uh, but but uh, Maya didn't she's a musician and you're a musician so I'm, I'm interested to hear your answer is is um I, I always ask if they ask you to mention a song or a piece of music that embodies who you are you know for a big part uh, which song or piece of music would that be oh I will I don't think there's a song out there that can embody me I'm so unique but uh <laughs> <laughs> 
I get you know this. what there are yeah. there are there are two songs I have been listening to recently for okay. for peace of mind. One is Abdullah Ibrahim, mm-hmm. a song of the mountain, the mountain song. Okay. That always brings a very sense of like extraterrestrial like kind of peace to me. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm a big Eddie Harris fan. Okay. And we have the same birthday that matters, but. And I found out that my best friend was in his band, so it really made a super connection to me. But I listened to his song "I Don't Want Nobody." You know, I, I, those songs bring me peace, but it, it's hard for a song to embody me because it would have to be probably some Prince song, super fast. Maybe it's going to be a beautiful night tonight. I would say that. Let's put that. That's the song that embodies me because I'm ready to get down. It's going to be a beautiful night tonight. Okay, great. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, that's three, but... Uh, no, no. <laughs> and and just again, for the, for the listeners, um, I, I made a special Spotify song list of all the songs that are picked by my guests. So if you go to Spotify and you search for uh, hashtag walk, talk, listen, you will see, well, you yeah, will find uh, many different songs from classical music to jazz uh, to heavy metal and stuff. So it's, it's pretty interesting. And that's the song list that I listen to, actually. Then I, you know, I'm reminded to great okay. people that I've mm-hmm. talked with. And yeah, that helps me. Um, you know, I, yeah, a question about uh, the, the album, uh, you know, about the Cold Trains was very different than your the albums before that. What is the next uh, album album going to be about? You know, mo- most of your questions today have been so unique, but this is one that people constantly ask me. <laughs> I, I, so, but yeah. no, I know I, I've yeah. enjoyed my time, but I understand it because to the outsider looking in, it's so mm-hmm. obscure. Mm-hmm. But if you know me and, and just black music and culture, mm-hmm. all of these genres are one. Yeah. We grew up in a household where the grandma's listening to gospel, mm-hmm. the mom is listening to rap. You know, and someone's yeah, listening yeah. to jazz. Like these are the the beat changes, mm-hmm. but it's just where you feel the beat. Yeah, that that really changes. It's almost like a bolero versus a a, 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 a you know so bachata song or something. Mm-hmm. So for me, by the time that I started writing songs, I was in a funky phase. I was mm-hmm. already, and somehow had had left like I'm not left the jazz, but had reached this phase. Yeah. So my shows were more fusion oriented. Mm-hmm. But with the Soul Squad, maybe six, eight years, I'm mm-hmm. touring that. Mm-hmm. And I just felt the weight of all the time. Everybody put your hands together. I was like, okay, I'm no more hands. Mm-hmm. You know, so just as an artist, I felt that I had more to say. And sometimes within that genre of music, for the audiences, they can, their harmonics can mm-hmm. only go so far. Yeah. In the context, like they, they partying, but you can't disturb the groove. <laughs> And I thought it was time to disturb the groove. Hmm. And at the same time, I had established what I had established, but I felt like there's so much different sides to me that nobody knows. Hmm. And they're not going to know unless I record it. Yeah. And then if I wanted to leave a true legacy, I would have to record all, all, all the sides of me. So that's what I wanted to do. And because I, I started picking them first, Alice and John, and and just the the reason I picked them is because of the legacy they left. And I started that from now on, from that CD on, there'll be no more fun and games. From now on, I'm at a time where it's time to really do albums that matter. Only don't just do an album for fun and leave some type of type of mega legacy and message for the next generation. So that's where I am now. Versus party, put your hands together. Even though I still do it sometimes, you know, but yeah, no, and and well, we all need it, you know, once in a while. So that's that's good. So I'm yeah, I'm for looking sure. forward to to. Uh, I mean, in terms of in terms of what you just said, it resonates with me. I'm I'm a big Miles Davis fan, and you know what what he said. If I don't know if he, I'm correctly quoting him, but you know the the, the sound of the street is changing. So yeah. so you know, and he talks a lot about the rhythm as well, but mm-hmm. but. Uh, for him, you know, if you look at his his music genre and his development, I think he that's all miles, you know. And although we as listeners or or you know critical folks, um, music critics out there would say, okay, this is his period like this, the cool Bob. This is like this. For him, it's miles who I am and how I express myself. I think, and that's 
I think that's what I hear you saying as well. If, if, uh, yeah, I that's mean, correct. Yeah. The, the 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 way to really tell what somebody's doing if it's if it's outside of them mm-hmm. is when you listen to the CD or if you have the actual track, solo Miles Davis in each era. Mm-hmm. And each era that he's playing, see, does he change? And you you find if you just listen to Miles and take away everybody else, it's the same man in a different context. It's almost like he's flying to different continents. So I always tell people like that. Oh yeah, they went. They they defined this. They defined this. Yeah, they did. But he stayed himself in it. It just mm-hmm. that's who he was the whole time. You know, actually, I I, um, I never asked this per, uh, any of my guests um, this question, but but I I feel this I don't know why, but that's it's appropriate. You have any question for me? Yeah, I do have a question for you. I have two. Okay. One, but besides looking at the the poverty and everything going on in the world what drives you to to find out more about artists and find out not what they did but why they've done it you know mm-hmm. and with all that's going on in the pandemic everything what do you feel you can do or are doing to help us keep our humanity my answer is is hopefully connecting your two questions because what i you know, I work for an organization that works in many countries uh, on poverty issues, hunger issues, you know, with refugees, with people that are don't have access to, you know, all the resources that many of us have. So I, I, so I try to do something um, about that through my organization. But if you really break it all down is where I think I hope to contribute, you know, to play my pieces, if I'm able to connect people. And uh, to show stories that people have and their experiences. Um, and that hopefully lead to a better understanding of why a person in India does like he or she does. <clears throat> and uh, how, you know, why a person in you know, Haiti reacts like he or she does. And if you have the better understanding, maybe that's the, um, you know, will help a conversation between people and dialogue and that is ultimately that we need in this world and it goes back to what you said uh, showing more empathy working together and realizing that we are on this earth to help each other and make this world a little bit better Uh, and that's what we need to do because you know what we are doing is destroying our world in the way we you know treat each other and treat you know the animals and treat uh, this planet so that's what i hope and so I'm not only talking with musicians, but this podcast is a very strange mix of, as, a, as I mentioned earlier, you know, of journalists, of people who are working in the humanitarian sector, um, 16-year-old CEOs of companies are trying to change the planet, but also musicians. And what I hope it shows is that, yes, people have different stories, but in essence, uh, there is so much that um, with everybody... Um, that you can listen to within this podcast series, you will find something that you appreciate and that you like, or you get an understanding of, oh, you know, this is how this person is. Um, mm. And so I hope that it contributes to that, you know, that, that thing that is so much necessary to realize we are interconnected and that we need, really need to work and help each other. That's that's what I hope, yeah. I think so, I mean... I mean, I don't know who watched your podcast, but I make a confession. When people send me uh, emails of, hey, Ms. Benjamin, these are the questions we're asking mm-hmm. for your thing, whatever. I don't read anything because I just want to be spontaneous and I don't want to study myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. So when you sent whatever you sent, I had no idea if you were from a jazz magazine mm-hmm. or if you were from a TV show, because I get maybe three interviews a day from people wanting to talk about pursuance. Yeah. So when I got woke up and got on this on this line. I was really surprised. I said, oh, my God, what have I signed up for? To me, it was it was a, like a breath of fresh air mm. for usually these concepts. When you bring them into the jazz interview, they're there and they're like, oh, wow, this is different. But it, I, I wasn't aware that this was that you were somebody that was very focused on something that I like spend my life looking forward to. <laughs> great. Well, so, yeah, it's great. <laughs> I'm happy to to hear that. I enjoy it. It's a mutual. Um, yeah. yeah. A lot of fun. I hope, you know, and that, uh, 
you know, if, if you your friends that might listen to this podcast because you're on it, that they also think like, oh, I would like to hear, you know, some of these other conversations that went on on this podcast to see how other people respond to similar questions. It definitely will happen because uh, I'm going to check. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to check what other people say for real. I'm going to check. Great. <laughs> okay. I And my last question for you, um, like you say, is any question, message, um, yeah, for for the listeners. Man, I just say or, keep or invitation. Going. Yeah, sorry. I I say keep going. That's the hardest thing to do when you have your goals, you have your dreams, you have life hitting you. the The natural tendency is to give up and stop, and then pursue something else, and give up and stop and pursue something else. And before you know it, you're sixty five, seventy, because each thing you didn't complete. So I would say keep going. Whatever it is you you wanted to do, finish that. And then move to the next. Finish that. Make a habit of finishing where you started. And then you're constantly living in purpose. And each time you accomplish something, you get more, uh, you get stronger. You get more confident. Like if I had stopped this project, think where my confidence level would have went. If I had tried to reach something so big and then failed. Because people were telling me it's impossible. It's impossible to have 40, 60 famous people. You don't have enough money. They don't even know you. It's impossible. That's all I kept hearing. So I stopped telling people what I was doing. And then I just showed them, look, it's not that impossible. So I tell people, keep going, keep fighting. Great. great. I, I liked it. Um, it's, it's something that my mom always, and my mom passed away last year. Uh, mm. And I, yeah, I was not able to be there for her. My God. Um, because I was in the States and she was in the Netherlands. Um, but she also is is the one who taught us all the children, you know, you know, finish what you start. So so uh, it's it's important for your yeah your growth, and uh, so even if you decide to do totally something else, but uh, yeah, finish what you start. I, I think that's a great great uh, message. Um, yeah, I would like to thank you for you know your willingness to speak with me and to share um, your experiences and your story with me and the listeners. Um, you know, keep doing what you do. I will oh, continue to you. follow you. I hope that um, I will be able to see you, uh, you know, live soon in a Maybe safe in environment. I think in March, March. I have the, I'm supposed to have the Netherlands, but we don't know what oh, happens. But I actually, I, I am in the Netherlands now for the listeners, but I live in the States at the moment. So um, when do you um, come back? In September. Yeah, oh, beginning well, of September. I, I have more shows here. I, I, I have two months from now until October in the States. And then we're supposed to have two months in Europe, but I'm, you know, just going with the climate to see what happens. Great. I, I will, yeah, I will check you, uh, check you out. Um, I will also ensure that the listeners can, you know, um, with the podcast or podcast notes, <clears throat> sorry. And um, I will make sure the links are there to your albums and to your website, okay. to your social media so that they can follow you. So thank you so much for today, for who you are. And uh, yeah, take care. Okay, thanks. You too. Thank you for listening to Walk, Talk, Listen please check us out on 100mile.org or follow us on Facebook or Instagram.